On a cold winter's evening on the 3rd of August 2019, a young woman's life and the lives of those who loved her would forever be changed. Although the supposed suspect was arrested within days of her murder, it would take years until a verdict and some form of conclusion would be reached. And even now, four years later, there seems to be more questions than ever before. This is the disturbing and mysterious case of Megan Crim. Hello and welcome to Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast hosted by me, Bella Monsoon. I'm a mental health professional, so Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast, explores real-life crimes occurring within South Africa from a psychological viewpoint. Every week, a new case is examined and we delve headfirst into the motives that drive people to do what they do. Join me weekly on a journey into the minds behind the madness as we traverse murder, mayhem, and much more. Megan Kremer was born in 1989. She grew up in Neisner, a beautiful little town on the garden route with her mother and older brother. At the age of nine, she began horse riding, going on to compete in championships and ultimately finding her life's mission and passion. In 2007, she finished high school and she went on to study at the Rhodes University in Grahamstown. It was there that she would graduate with a Bachelor of Science degree in microbiology. Her passion and the reason she chose to follow this path is that she wanted to find a cure for horse sickness as she loved animals dearly. After completing her degree, she moved to Cape Town, where her brother was already living and owned a bakery, the Woodstock Bakery. The two were very close, and soon after, she began to work for her brother, in the capacity of bakery manager. She was also able to spend some time with her nephew, as well as be around family, as her mother lived back in Neisner. During her time in Cape Town, she also started her own small business, which focused on creating show ribbons and pieces for horse riding competitions. Throughout her entire life, her one true love was horse and this is what led her to ultimately moving to the farming semi-rural suburb of Philippi within Cape Town. Philippi is classed as a semi-urban township in Cape Town, originally called the Dunes and established in the 1980s. It owes its name to the fact that its land was used predominantly as grazing for farms in the area. To this day, it is still home to farms that produce around 80% of Cape Town's vegetables, roughly 100,000 tons annually. However, for all its lush land and beauty, it is also known for its high crime rates. Just years back, the infamous Jesus serial killer, Jimmy Maketa, stalked and killed his victims, all workers or residents in the Philippi area. He would stalk and watch them hiding on the infamous dunes. Crime reports from 2022, last year, also showcased that Philippi East was one of the leading areas for hijackings in the entire country. Since the previous year, there was a 32.3% increase in crime. But with all the negative comes the fact that there were beautiful plots of land in the area. And this is ultimately where Megan was drawn to. She ended up moving to live on a horse farm where she had stabled her horse, Sir Blue, that she had had for 15 years. This farm was the Feder Lanschke Rietvlei farm owned by Joffrey and Linda Moore. Initially, she had met the family while searching for suitable stables for Sir Blue. And then just a few months later, she had moved into a cottage just a few hundred meters away from the main farmhouse. On this farm, she continued to operate her small business as well as being incredibly involved in the equestrian community. She loved the peace and quiet of the surroundings and according to those close to her, she felt perfectly safe on the 49 hectare farm. To the Moors and Linda Moore in particular, Megan was like one of her children. She would bring chocolate croissants and other delicious treats from the bakery twice a week, check up on everyone regularly and on birthdays you would be sure you would receive a gift from her. Everyone who knew her described her as a generous and helpful person who went out of her way to share kindness even to strangers. 
Her favorite time of the year was Christmas. Not because of all the gifts that she received, but because of the gifts she loved to share. She would take part in Santa's shoebox projects, putting together boxes of toys and presents for children in need. She was also the kind of person who celebrated June, because it was halfway to Christmas. And she put up her Christmas tree at the end of October. She, like me, was also a Harry Potter fanatic, obsessed with the movies as well as collecting memorabilia. A little Gryffindor jersey that she had bought her nephew just just a short while before her murder, soon became his favorite item of clothing. And I'm sure that besides what I've mentioned here, she was so much more to so many more people. But unfortunately, no one can know what the rest of Megan's life had in store for her. In the weeks prior to her murder, she had rescued a sick, abused puppy, and she was nursing it back to health, happiness, and teaching it to trust humans again. This little puppy's name was Bella and she was quite smitten with Megan. But unfortunately, she would not have long with this person who had saved her life. And so, now that you're pretty much all caught up, let's fast forward to the day in question. On the 3rd of August, a Saturday, it was a day like any other. Most of the last days of the victims I speak about on this channel are just like that. Just another ordinary day. Megan had finished work for the day and she had returned home. Her mother Gillian had spoken to her throughout the day, both on WhatsApp and via phone. That was until just before 5pm when she received the last message she would ever read from her daughter. Gillian would text Megan at around 8pm, however the message did not deliver. Linda Moore, the wife of the owner of the farm, would also attest to how she had spoken to her later in the day and heard how Megan was all snuggled up and ready for bed to spend the night in playing with her puppy. A client from the stables had popped by the home just before 6pm that evening and had found Megan on the couch with a blanket and a streaming app opened on her laptop. However, individuals on the farm would later notice that Bella, Megan's puppy, was wandering around outside later that night. They had then attempted to call Megan since this was incredibly odd, but at that point they realized both her business and her personal phones were off. Gillian in Neisner didn't think too much of her failed attempt that Saturday night to reach her daughter, and so she had tried the following morning to get hold of her on both her business and her personal phone to no avail. All the calls went straight to voicemail. And this is when she knew that something was drastically wrong, as Megan would never turn off her phones. She then phoned the bakery only to find out that Megan had not pitched for work another red flag. And while she continued to try to locate her daughter via phone calls, she made plans to get into Cape Town to search for her. And around this time, a driver from the bakery where Megan worked would remember seeing her white Toyota Aris at a roadblock the previous evening in Weinberg. Back at the farm, Thomas Mbolula, the farm manager, as well as one of the farm owner's sons, then drove the route that Megan would usually take, seeing if they could locate her vehicle or potentially her her along the way. They unfortunately had no such luck. Thomas had then attempted to report Megan missing, however he was asked at the Philippi police station why a black man was trying to report a white woman missing. He then contacted the Moors who intervened and also shared Megan's image to a police reservist who distributed it amongst his colleagues. And at this time social media was abuzz, sharing missing posters of Megan. And so the search for Megan would continue. A few hours later, Gillian arrived in Cape Town and she met with police. They then proceeded to the cottage that Megan lived in. The burglar bars were removed and upon entering, they saw that there were obvious items missing. At first glance, these appeared to include her laptop, cell phones, iPad and her handbag. And as those on the farm continued to search for Megan, little did they know that the individual who would later stand trial and be held responsible for her disappearance worked not a stone throw away. Let's for a moment though leave that narrative right where it is. Megan is missing, social media is abuzz, and everyone is desperately searching for her. But what about the supposed alleged perpetrator? The man who would later stand trial for her murder? Let us look at a different perspective and angle, that very same day from a different viewpoint. 
The man in question had worked on the farm as a general worker since he was a teenager. He had basically grown up there and he was employed by Joffrey Moore. On the day in question though, during his workday, he had taken some mints that had been dumped by a food truck for the farm animals and he had left it in one of the pig stalls. He had intended to take it home to feed his dogs, but by the end of his workday, he completely forgot about it. But why does this seemingly useless piece of information matter though? Well, you will shortly see. So after work at around 5pm, he went to drink at his usual spot where he consumed about 4 or 5 quarts of beer. And it was at this point that he remembered the mints. An incredibly random thing to remember when you're slightly inebriated, but anyways. He then took a walk back to the farm to fetch it, and it was around dusk at this point in time. On his way though, he had spotted a white Toyota Aris, parked towards the back gate of the farm, an area that was considered to be a lover's lane of sorts. Often couples, mostly at night, would pull into that secluded area of the farm to have some adult fun. This man had approached the vehicle though. He noticed that the car was empty, but oddly enough, the key was in the ignition. And so, like anyone would, instead of just walking away or looking for the owner of the vehicle, he decided to take it on a joyride. Yeah, no, not really the first response of your average individual, I would say. But as this man would later testify, he really liked cars, and taking them on joy rides and then returning them later was something that he did on occasion. Mm -hmm. And so, his previous plans and his pets forgotten, he had started the vehicle, seen that the petrol light had lit up, and so he had driven to the garage for fuel. At this point in the story, there will be more perspectives that are added, as individuals who are mentioned would later testify. As always, with the caveat that even though one is sworn to tell the truth in court, we can never really know whether that oath is being upheld. But... I digress. So there this man is, in a vehicle that does not belong to him, on the way to his girlfriend's brother's home, who just so happens to be his friend too. In the vehicle, under the passenger seat, he had found a brown handbag and a purse. In the purse was an ID card and a driver's license. He immediately recognized the lady in the picture. It was Megan Kramer. But at this point, instead of considering returning the bag and the vehicle, he continued to rifle through it. You see, he actually knew Megan, but their interactions were limited to greetings as well as following up on maintenance requests, as that was his field. He had also on occasion watched her jumping and training with horses on the farm. So he knew her, maybe even a little better than she knew him though. And on a side note, speaking of things that he knew, he also knew the farm extremely well, especially the location of all the security cameras, even having assisted setting up a pole for one on the property. Once again, I digress, but just keep that in mind. And so, unperturbed by this new evidence, he would continue to the local ATMs to see if he could draw out any money from her bank cards. He had apparently used his wit and logic to guess that her birthday would be the pin for one of her cards. And thus, he had managed to withdraw 500 rand from the account on one occasion and 100 rand at a later occasion. He would also later share her bank cards and the pin with his friends. When he was asked about the owner of the vehicle, he had responded that it belonged to Grant, who was one of the sons of his employer. The friend he had gone to visit, who happened to be his partner's brother, his name was Wilton Azur. The two of them had then driven to Pumlani village, where they had spent the 500 rand on wine and brandy at a local bottle store, as well as KFC. So as mentioned, this chain of events is compiled by both testimony of this man, as well as Wilton. Testimony, might I add, that Wilton was allegedly threatened not to give the night before he took the stand. Right, so after the bottle store, this man, his partner Jay Dean, Wilton, Wilton's girlfriend Mariana Souls, and another friend entered the vehicle and they all headed to the local Shabin, Jar Rules, where they began to drink before heading to a nightclub in Weinberg. 
wickets. However, before they could reach that destination, their vehicle was stopped at a roadblock in Weinberg, just before 11pm by traffic officer Fernandez. This man had exited his vehicle and ran away in an attempt to flee the breathalyzer test. However, shortly after, he was apprehended and brought back to the vehicle. He was found to be under the legal drinking limit, however, he did not have a valid driver's license. As is protocol, the keys were allegedly removed from the ignition and the group were told to find a licensed driver in order to drive the vehicle again. That law enforcement was short-lived though, as a few moments later the keys were handed back, the group got back into the vehicle and they left. Yep, amazing police work in action. Instead of returning home though after that ordeal, their next stop was a local tavern, which is a semi-informal kind of bar for those who are not familiar. It was at this location that Wilton would later notice his friend drink like it was no one's business. He could tell something was wrong, but there was no conversation had between the two. According to Wilton, the man had at one point disappeared for about half an hour or so, before returning. Later testimony would showcase that it was at this point that he had returned to Philippi, parking in Flay Road. He had decided to check the vehicle for valuables one last time before he was going to allegedly return it, as it was getting late. But the plan had changed when he stumbled for the first time apparently on the boot of the vehicle, where inside lay Megan's body. She was wearing a K-way jacket and she was lying in the fetal position. He immediately closed the boot and he drove straight to Oliboom Road, an area that was surrounded by farms, but an area that he also knew quite well. This was his first response to the situation, because in his mind, he had deduced that he would be held responsible for her murder because he had been in possession of her vehicle. After parking, he had then picked her up, with one hand by her knees and the other by her back, and he had carried her to the bushes where he lay her down. He only apparently noticed the blue ribbon around her neck and her wrists when he lay her on the ground. He noticed this in the pitch black darkness. Okay, interesting. He had then left her body under a tree and some bushes and he had driven back to the tavern where his friends were waiting. Wilton would later testify that the man drank a lot from this point on. As they ended the night, the group would head to another location in the Egoli Informal Settlement, the home of Charles Daniels, who we will meet in a short while. Here, a conversation about selling the vehicle was had. The group had then disembarked from the vehicle and gone their separate ways, and Charles had then parked the car off the main road for the evening, so as not to draw unwanted attention. Back at Wilton's home a little while later, the man had given him two phones, an LG and a Samsung, which he later took back. Before that happened though, Wilton caught sight of a white woman on a horse on one of the cell phones. And this would be the last glimpse he ever got of the phones though, as the man had proceeded to smash them both with a brick to destroy them before throwing one onto the roof and the other into the toilet. It was alleged that he was not aware that Wilton had followed him outside and was watching this chain of events play out. This man had then grabbed what was described by Wilton as a lecker big brown bag and he had thrown that onto the roof too. And so they had finally gone to bed for the night. As the man left for work the next morning, Wilton would testify that he was told that the knife was in a safe place. When questioned further about what he meant, the man would not answer. And so life had seemingly continued, until the following day that is. It was a Monday evening, the 5th of August, and the two had been watching TV in the home when the police had come knocking on the door. When asked later about that day, the man would recall that he had had a terrible day at work, and he would say, I was not normal. I was thinking a lot about her, that I had just left her like that. He chose, however, not to confide at anyone at his workplace because he feared either being fired or them not looking at him in the same way after that. But then you may be wondering, so if he didn't tell anyone, how ever did the police put two and two together? Well, let's rewind just a little. Remember after that Saturday night joyride, this man had given his friend, Charles Daniels, the vehicle to sell, right? 
Well, the next day, Charles had visited the nearby Jim Sabos informal settlement to meet with a potential buyer. On the way, he had picked up Shiraz Jafta. At the location, however, the deal had fallen through as there was no paperwork or registration papers that could be provided for the vehicle. I mean, because it was stolen, you know? Anyways... It was on the way home that the vehicle was spotted by police officers. The vehicle that was driving with no number plates. And so this is how the policing unit would inadvertently catch the man we've been speaking of. Back at the station, Charles and Shiraz were questioned about the whereabouts of the female owner of the vehicle. It was at this point that Charles told them that he got the vehicle from Bompi, who had said that it was acquired in Stellenbosch. And so it was Monday evening that the police would arrest this man, Bompi. He would not even have time to think about an escape. As he answered the front door, he was asked immediately if he was Bompi, to which he replied, Yes. He was then taken outside to where Cello, Charles Daniels, was then brought. Two gas guns, in addition to a PlayStation, were taken from his home and would later be presented as evidence as the weapons used to rob Megan. After his arrest, Wilton would not see his friend again. Wilton was also taken into custody and he was kept at the Lansdowne police station for three days before being released. Upon his release, he had pointed out all the items to the police that his friend had attempted to hide. So now that this man was arrested, Let's meet him properly, shall we? The man I have been speaking about is Jeremy Sears. On the night he was arrested and in the days that followed, he would later claim to have been assaulted by numerous officers numerous times, as a trial within a trial would later play out in court. He alleged that he was hit with a pole, kicked, slapped, tripped and attacked by a police dog. However, he had not sustained any visible injuries, which he would later attribute to the fact that he was wearing three tops as well as oversized boots. His friend Charles Daniels, who was also arrested, would later showcase a photo of a tiny wound, which allegedly was from a dog bite whilst he was held in custody with Jeremy. Jeremy's story would later be described by media as captivating, as he detailed how he was threatened by a police officer Sangoma. He also stated that during his car ride and initial arrest, he was shown a picture of Megan and asked where she was. The officers who would later take to the stand would deny these allegations. So after Jeremy and Charles had allegedly been attacked by the police officers as well as a dog from the canine unit. They offered no information to the police and so they were booked in separate cells for the night. Both Charles Daniels and Shiraz Jafter who were initially charged ended up having their cases transferred to the Weinberg Regional Court. After Jeremy's arrest the following morning, he led the investigating officer Molani Basso and other police officers to the scene where the vehicle had been taken. He even assisted the police officers as well as the farm manager, Thomas, to look for Megan in the vicinity, even though he knew very well she was nowhere in the area. During this time, Jeremy would later say that he was promised bail and a lighter punishment by the officers in charge if he confessed to the crime and led them to the body. Later that day, he was questioned once again, this time by Captain Ashley Peterson and Sergeant Adrian Barron from the Grassy Park Precinct who demanded that he disclosed where he got the car from and where the items were. It was during this questioning that he would later claim that he was abused again. He would allege that he was pulled at, kicked and hit amongst other things. And it was also this point in time where he was told about the different court systems and how his case would be handled in lower court if he just spoke the truth. But if he didn't, then his case would be heard in high court and he would never see his children again. He then asked the investigating officer Basso to please call his partner, Jadine. She would arrive at the police station and she would later testify to being so shocked by what she heard in the room that she had to leave. Her statement, however, would not be entered into evidence as it was only made in the presence of the I.O. who was a sergeant and that's not a high enough rank to legally be able to take a statement. Jeremy would state that if he had been granted bail, he would have ensured that his children and everyone in the family home would be okay. And so after all of that, allegedly, his initial statement was taken. 
and it was at this point that the footage that would later be played in court was recorded. After his confession, Jeremy was taken and, I quote, to go and get the body. He would point out her remains, but he refused to go close to where she was lying. After her body had been located, he was taken to the Heidefeld clinic to be examined. He then told the doctor there that he had been assaulted. He was prescribed with some pain medication and he was returned to the police station. And with that, the search for Megan Kramer had come to an end. On the morning of the 8th of August at around 6am, Megan's mother Jillian had received the phone call she dreaded. The phone call that told her that a body had been found that was believed to be Megan's and it needed to be identified. Megan had been found with her hands bound and a restraint around her neck, the very same blue ribbons that she worked with. Her face had been so badly injured with abrasions to her nose, left cheek and forehead that according to her mother she was identified by a ring that she had worn since she was 15 years old. The injuries signaled to the pathologist that they were caused by blunt force trauma in the form of a blow to the head or the front of the head striking something. A post-mortem would deduce that ligature strangulation was the cause of her death. The soft blue ribbon was wrapped six times around her neck, which would have taken roughly 12 to 25 seconds for her to lose consciousness. In another three to five minutes, the life would have drained from her body. This estimation was made in later testimony by pathologist Dr. Gavin Kirk. Additionally, there were no signs of rigor mortis, which usually disappear after about three days, which put her time of death somewhere between three days and a week. Animals such as rodents had started to consume her, with parts of her face missing like her ears. And with that heartbreaking news, her friends and family would begin funeral preparations. Megan would have a private memorial at the very farm she lived on, ironically the place where her life had most probably ended. The memorial which some press members attended was laid back and informal, suited to the spirit and person that Megan was. Friends and family made touching tributes to the soul that Megan was, but her mother was too heartbroken to speak. A family friend, Neil Van Hess, would go on to say of Megan, She had four passions in her life. Her horses, her nephew Jack, ice cream, and her spirit of generosity, which was best demonstrated during Christmas. But as her body was laid to rest, so many questions still remained. Questions that could hopefully be answered by Jeremy. So I've been talking about this man, Jeremy, this general worker on the farm, but who exactly was he? Jeremy Sears was a father to five children between the ages of two and 11, and he was described during the later trial by Megan's landlord and his employer as a good guy that you could depend on. He lived in the nearby Egoli informal settlement with his partner and the four children they shared together. He also had a previous conviction of assault, which he pled guilty to after kicking and slapping a woman he was romantically involved with. As I mentioned earlier, Jeremy had grown up for a good portion of his life on the Moore family small holding. It was later alleged by himself, might I add, that he had lived with the family for a period of time during his primary school years after Joffrey had taken him in. However, after the Moore children had unfairly blamed him for something, he had decided to move out and live with his aunt. He would go on to drop out of school in grade 7 as he apparently got too big for his boots and often challenged his teacher's authority. He was then employed by the family since he was a teenager, 16 years old to be precise. He worked on the neighboring Pine Acres farm until he began working on Fadorlanske Rietvlei. He enjoyed driving, however, he was no stranger to getting into trouble, with behavior earmarked as naughty for a young man. This would include taking the farm quad bike for an unauthorized spin, as well as driving the work tractor into a wall. Yeah, naughty. Not exactly the term I would use, 
But anyway, at one point, he was even fired for driving one of the Moors' vehicles without permission. However, after being jobless for a short time, he was asked to return to work by the family. Him disregarding rules and them forgiving him was apparently, according to him anyways, the way it went. But he was not the only one arrested that night. Two other men would also find themselves in the path of the law in regards to the very same case. So who exactly were these men, you may ask? Well, I've made mention briefly of them earlier in this episode. They were friends and acquaintances of Jeremy's. Charles Daniels, 39 years old, and Shiraz Jafta, 34 years old. Like Jeremy, they also had past convictions or pending cases. Whilst Jeremy had a pending car theft case and prior assault conviction, Charles had a pending theft case and Shiraz had a prior drug and assault conviction as well as a pending murder case. The three of them also had multiple withdrawn cases as victims failed to appear in court to testify. So it's pretty apparent that these three men were no strangers to the law. There was also a rumour that the three of them belonged to the Six Bobs gang. However, there doesn't appear to be much information to substantiate this besides self-proclamations. But I'll discuss how it may relate to the case overall just a little while later. So initially the three had been charged with possession of Megan Kramer's vehicle. The murder charge was only added however after Jeremy had pointed out where Megan's body could be found. After their arrest, Shiraz applied for bail, much to the shock and anger of the community. One organization, Women Fight Back, submitted a petition with around 64,000 signatures to oppose Shiraz's release. His decision to apply for bail was short-lived, and very soon he abandoned his application. The other two men, waving and smiling at their loved ones in court, opted to not apply for bail. The case against Jeremy remained in high court. Due to the state of the world, however, it would face many postponements over the next months and even years. One of the first delays was in January of 2020, and it was due to a backlog at the police laboratories, which made receiving the DNA results required impossible at the time. I wish I could say that we don't currently have a DNA backlog any longer in South Africa, but unfortunately that is not the case. According to a report from the 23rd of November 2022, there is steady progress being made in reducing the DNA backlog. Within the Western Cape, since the 24th of August 2022, when the backlog was at around 25,290, it was reduced three months later to 15,259. And that is really the state of affairs in a nutshell. But back to 2020. The alleged perpetrators were highly unimpressed at the continuous postponements, with Jeremy facing charges of murder and armed robbery, and the other two facing charges of car theft and defeating the ends of justice. Soon after, the case against Charles and Shiraz was transferred to the Athlone Regional Court. Charles would plead guilty to the charge of possession of stolen property, and he was handed a four-year sentence. By the time Jeremy's trial would eventually begin, he had been released after serving one year. The case against Shiraz was withdrawn. None of them appeared to show any remorse or concern for the friends and family of Megan during this time though. The very same family who had travelled over five hours and more sometime from Neisner and other parts of South Africa to be present at court appearances for the daughter, sister and friend they had lost. And with the pandemonium of the world in 2020, the case continued to drag on. In March of 2021, when things looked finally set to resume, there was yet another setback in the form of Jeremy's legal representative ending her mandate with him, citing that there was a break in trust. He was thus advised to seek legal aid assistance. The trial was then postponed to May. When the actual trial finally began, Jeremy pled not guilty to all the charges laid against him, including premeditated murder, aggravated robbery, defeating the administration of justice, for allegedly disposing of her iPad in a bathroom and destroying her phones to be traced, and theft in regards to her stolen bank cards. 
evidence. And so the trial would begin, with more shocking evidence, accusations, and alleged truths coming to light. A large portion of time would also be spent in a trial within a trial of sorts to determine admissibility of some evidence. The evidence in question was the confession and statement that Jeremy had initially made, as well as the video of him pointing out Megan's body and the relevant notes. The main reason why this admissibility was called into question was that Jeremy had claimed that he was abused, assaulted and forced into admitting his guilt and that he had killed Megan. During that portion of the trial, the investigating officer, along with the officers who had allegedly conducted the abuse, were called to the stand. All, of course, had denied assaulting or coercing Jeremy. Sergeant Basso, the I.O., claimed that he was not aware of the assault that allegedly occurred at the Philippi police station, as he was not present at the time of the arrest. He would also allege that a police officer had placed a gun to Charles Daniel's head and threatened to kill them both. Jeremy also went on to state that Sergeant Basso had made promises regarding the severity of the consequences he would face should he choose to cooperate or be difficult. And once again, Basso, who was in the witness box, would deny these allegations. To testify on the validity of the allegations, the doctor who had examined him after his arrest would take to the stand. Dr. Fatima Kardika would state that Jeremy said he was beaten for three days, particularly targeted to his chest and abdomen. However, upon her examination, she only found a small minor abrasion to his back, which had already began healing. Examination of his rib cavity didn't show any deformity, bruising, or crepitus, which is a popping, clicking, or crackling sound in the joint. She would add that he also appeared stable, neat, clean, and not distressed in any way. As I previously mentioned, Jeremy had also seen another doctor at the Heidefeld Community Health Center after he had pointed out Megan's body. He was examined in the early hours of the 8th of August by Dr. Matthew Wilson. Dr. Wilson would state that he could not speculate whether the injuries noted could correspond with someone who had been abused intermittently for three days. He also did not have notes on the extremely emotional demeanor of Jeremy as his legal representation had claimed. The only altercation that would be testified to was between Jeremy and Charles on the night of their arrest. Sergeant Taswell Flink, one of the individuals behind the initial arrest of the three men, witnessed an altercation between the two. The timeline of events would also differ, with Jeremy alleging that the assault by the police officers began at this point and would last for around 15 minutes. Sergeant Flink, however, would state that at this point, they were already separated and being booked into holding cells. It would be suggested by Jeremy's legal representation, Bashir Sibda, that the police were desperate to know where Megan, who at this point was still a missing person, was, and so they did whatever they thought was necessary. At one point in time during the trial, when called to testify along with two sergeants from the provincial dog unit, investigating officer Basso failed to show up after being subpoenaed. This brought new attention to the mental health of officers and brought under the scope of inspection the effects of burnout. Jeremy's version of events was in part corroborated by Charles Daniels, who showcased a small scar on his stomach where he alleged that a canine unit dog bit him. He corroborated Jeremy's allegations too that the dog had pulled and bit at his gumboot footwear. However, there were many irregularities between their version of events, from a firearm being present in Jeremy's version, which was very much absent in Charles' version, to the number of dogs that were apparently set on them. Look, I'm no expert here, but I'm pretty sure you would remember if it was one dog or three dogs, for example, that were attacking you. I'm just saying. Along with those inconsistencies, there were differences in the sizes of the weapons that were used and how and where they were used. Charles would later add, Police are used to assaulting suspects. They are cowards. I have been arrested before. Every time they do the same thing. I don't know if they were bullied as little ones. And do you remember Walton, Jeremy's friend? Well, he was recalled in court after it was established that Megan's cause of death was strangulation. He was questioned as to why he stated that he saw a bloodied top in Jeremy's belongings, 
whilst mentioning a knife, creating the impression that the blood had belonged to the deceased. Wilton would maintain that Jeremy had mentioned the knife to him, although Megan had no stab wounds on her body. DNA tested from this top would later showcase that the blood was from Wilton's partner, as the couple were in a physical altercation earlier that day in question. The very same physical altercation that Jeremy had testified occurred initially. On a side note, the majority of this trial would be spent deliberating the admissibility of the evidence for the record. And as the trial within a trial came to a close, a decision was made by the Western Cape High Court judge Elizabeth Bartman. The statements wherein Jeremy confessed, as well as the video recording detailing this much, was admitted as evidence within the trial. As the footage of Jeremy pointing out the body and the subsequent actions were played in court, he held his head in his hands and wept. In the footage, when asked if he murdered someone, he responds, Desvar. This is true, but he does not state who. Portions of the video are also inaudible, which led the judge to request a transcript. At the site where her body was found, after a 20-minute trek by torchlight, Jeremy gestures in the direction and says, Darle se, she is lying there. Jeremy would also take to the stand and testify with much of the information I have shared during this episode. He would further state that he was upset to see her body lying there like that. And so it would seem that the trial was more or less pointing to the fact that Jeremy was the man behind the murder. But then, hit the fan. So, let's look briefly at what went down. The first revelation, which sent the media into a frenzy, was the emergence of a secret romantic relationship between the farm manager Thomas and Megan that had spanned the two years prior to her murder. The decision for their relations to be private was also apparently a mutual one. The last time he had seen her was on the afternoon of the 3rd, when he had returned from a horse show. She had been sitting outside of her cottage on the step by her door, smoking. He was cross-examined by the defense, yet continuously denied being involved in any way in her death. He would testify that he had no reason to murder her, even though he was technically the last person to see her alive and the first person to notice she was missing. Normally, those revelations in investigations often point to the guilty party, but not all the time. He also had an alibi for the evening as he was at the Moor property with a group of other individuals. Bashir Sibda, however, would point to the fact that whilst offloading horses about 30 meters away from her, he did not stop to engage her in conversation at any point during this time, which he stated was strange. Thomas, however, would state that he was preoccupied with his work and with the nature of his work being live animals, he couldn't exactly just leave them for a few moments to go and make conversation, which I believe is quite a fair point. It was then argued by Sibda that he kept his relationship private so as not to be seen as a person of interest within the case. But Thomas stood his ground, and as I mentioned, he had an alibi, so his time in the witness stand was over. Jeremy's legal representation then called the wife of his former employer, as well as Megan's landlord, Linda Moore, to testify as a witness. And the narrative that she would share would be incredibly fascinating, particularly to the media that were present. During her testimony, where she relayed how herself and her husband were Megan's landlords since she had moved into one of their cottages in 2016, she stated that Megan was extremely close to the family. She was invited to many of the family gatherings as she did live in the cottage alone and she had a good relationship with many of the family members. She would go on to testify that shortly before her disappearance, Megan, who wasn't exactly rolling in money, had purchased a horse that Linda had been selling for a client in cash. 75,000 rands worth of cash to be precise. Look, that in itself, if true, is a bit strange, I'll admit. Linda, however, had insisted upon an EFT and electronic funds transfer as she didn't want to be carrying that amount of cash around with her, especially given the fact that we live in South Africa. The spending had allegedly continued with the cash purchase of a saddle, which cost between 30 and 35,000 rand. She then also began taking lessons with Linda, which were not cheap either. Her account of the Moors had jumped from a 
around 10,000 rand, which was her rent, to 24 to 30,000 rand, which she had wanted to pay for in cash. And then besides the sudden increase in cash flow, Linda would testify that there were strange men that had been watching Megan. During one of their scheduled lessons, Linda had seen three men dressed in long white robes that had been parked on the road adjacent to their farm. When Linda had asked Megan about them, she had not reacted or replied. And this occurrence had happened again two days later. When the farm manager Thomas and her husband, Joffrey, had approached the men on farm quad bikes, the car had driven off. And allegedly, later that day, a man in an unknown vehicle had approached the farm gate, asking if Megan Kremer lived there. And that was not it for the strange occurrences prior to her disappearance, according to Linda. She had also lost a lot of weight, around 10 kgs to be precise, in the months leading up to her disappearance, and her personality had changed. She also withdrew from the horse club of which she had been secretary. And remember that sudden cash flow I just mentioned? Well, although she had been a great tenant in the past, always settling her debts on time, in the month preceding her murder, she called Linda to tell her that she was short on cash, and she would be paying the following week. She, however, would never get the chance to settle that debt though. Another thing which stood out to Linda was the fact that Megan would often leave her cottage at around 3am, stating that she had an early shift at the bakery and needed to get into work. When everything came to light though, it appeared that Megan's bakery shifts only started at 7.30am. Linda would go on to state that around two months before her disappearance and death, Megan had told her that she had cancer and she needed to undergo surgery. When Linda had offered to collect her from the hospital after her operation, Megan had refused, saying that her mother was going to travel from Neisner to pick her up and she was going to spend some time in Neisner recuperating. It is unclear whether any of this actually happened. After the operation, however, Megan had lifted her top up to showcase a plaster and blood, which to Linda appeared to look like mercurochrome. Besides the one source that I found, nowhere else was there a mention of this narrative. And I'm almost certain that a medical diagnosis of this extent and this kind would 100% be on her medical record, especially if she had had an operation. Linda would also state that when she filed the missing persons report, she mentioned that Megan would have a scar on her stomach from the operation. And so the day of her disappearance dawned. It was on this day that CCTV footage would showcase her vehicle driving to the back entrance of the farm. It was confirmed by Linda that the individual driving was indeed Megan, however the footage was quite blurry. That very same camera would also show Jeremy leaving the farm after the workday. He would not be seen reappearing though. On the recordings, that is, at least. Linda claimed that herself and her husband had wanted to share their CCTV footage and recordings with the police, who had stated that they didn't need more information because they already had the culprit. She would elaborate that the police had treated herself and Thomas poorly, and they only appeared to want portions of the CCTV camera footage from the day Megan went missing. Like I always say though, without hard black and white evidence, it's really impossible to know exactly who is telling the truth. And so then the story becomes just a little more bizarre. Linda would also state that after Gillian had arrived in Cape Town and been to Megan's cottage, at some point she had removed a pillowcase full of items, unknown to Linda. For some reason, this stuck out enough for Linda to mention it during her testimony. While testifying to all this new information though, Linda also corrected the image that Jeremy had portrayed of the relationship between the Moors and himself. She also stated that he was not seen as a child of theirs, but he was a worker. Contrary to the evidence Jeremy gave, stating that he lived on their property for a good period of time and was basically adopted by them, she stated that he would sometimes spend the night in one of their rooms after his mother had deserted him. And to shed a further light on the disagreement that Jeremy had mentioned, it had turned out that one of her very generous sons had given Jeremy a watch which was actually his sister's birthday present. When Linda and Joffrey had asked him for the watch, he refused to give it back and never did. The judge in the case would later state that Linda was a credible witness and displayed a commitment to fair play, which was, and I quote, remarkably absent in some officers who were involved in the matter. Mic drop.
And as you can imagine, after Linda's testimony, the media went crazy and bits and pieces of the evidence she gave not only became headlines, but became twisted into different stories altogether. Yet another reason why so many aspects of some main media platforms drive me absolutely crazy at times. I mean, at the end of the day, if it's not about stories being blown out of proportion or sensationalized by the media themselves, it's individuals on social media who share narratives that may or may not be true. Case in point, what I'm about to tell you. At the beginning of this entire ordeal, one of Linda's sons had already faced the firing squad when someone on social media had seen that he was friends with Jeremy Sias on Facebook. Her son Grant was then made out to be a suspect and a murderer. One Facebook user had even stated that if he saw him in public, he would kill him. And another one of Linda's sons, who would testify later on in the trial, would also get media a buzzing. James, the younger son of Linda and Joffrey, would testify that he had a friendly relationship with Megan, and he was aware of her drug use. Sorry, wait, what? You know how I just said black and white evidence or it's hearsay? Well, James had the WhatsApp conversation history to prove his testimony. And the messages went a little like this. In February of 2018, there was a message from Megan stating, Drug hangovers are the worst. To which he had asked her if it was worth it. She had replied, Was bloody amazing until I had to get up an adult at 7.30 this morning. They had then joked with some emojis and she had told him that he shouldn't do drugs as that was her wise advice. When he had asked if the entire experience was expensive, Megan had responded, Yes, James, coke is not cheap. Just our drinks bill was over 3k. When he had replied that he had never used that quantity, she had said, You are generally pretty sober too. I was so far from sober, I am pretty sure I was borderline illegal. Don't tell anyone about the drugs, especially not Nikki. Side note, that's James's sister. I've grown really fond of our relationship, James. I like that there's no potential awkwardness. We might like each other's stuff that might get in the way. I enjoy our meme conversations where we don't really talk. And later she would add that she had a strict no weed or injectables rule on drugs. Besides their conversations about her drug use though, she would offer him life advice, seeing as though he was 24 years old at the time and she was older. In one message she told him, I have some advice for you since I'm older and I feel I need to pass on my life lessons. Do not take large amounts of cocaine. The sweats that come afterwards are not worth it. And as you can imagine, those WhatsApp messages sent the media into a whirlwind. In January of 2019, she had been looking for a new laptop. She didn't want to buy it online though and wanted to go into a store. James had accompanied her to buy this laptop where she had then pulled out between 10 and 12,000 rand to pay for the device. The security had had to come and supervise the transaction as it was a large amount of cash. James would describe her purse as being the size of a handbag with still plenty of cash left in it afterwards. He had his unproven suspicions that she was dealing drugs. He would also however admit that he had never actually seen her use drugs though. I digress for a moment just to mention that no evidence of drug use was detected by the pathologist who examined Megan's body. If there had been an indication of substance use, a toxicology report would have been requested. But either way, the police did not request it. So as it were, it's up for debate. And in all honesty, it held no relevance to this trial. Besides for the fact of whether or not different parties should be investigated as potential suspects in the case. The media vilification of a victim who is not around to defend themselves just isn't it. I'm just saying. The last interaction between James and Megan appeared strange to him in hindsight, as she seemed stressed and distracted. A farm irrigation app he had spent the year developing, with her input, had just been finalized and he had excitedly told her the news. However, she seemed incredibly disengaged from the conversation, very much unlike her ordinary self. And so James's time on the witness stand came to an end and the trial drew to a close. On the 26th of January 2023, just over three and a half years after her murder, 
the verdict was in. Jeremy Sias, who was charged with premeditated murder, aggravated robbery, theft and obstruction of justice, was found not guilty on the murder charges as well as the charge of aggravated robbery. He was, however, found guilty on two counts of theft, one for her vehicle and one for her handbag, as well as defeating the ends of justice, for destroying Megan's cell phones and throwing her iPhone in a toilet to avoid detection by the authorities. Upon hearing the verdict, he had said, in Afrikaans but translated, the truth came out, I am happy. He has been behind bars since the 5th of August 2019. His lawyer, upon hearing the verdict, would reiterate that the police made up their minds from the onset and thus shut down all other lines of inquiry. The matter has been adjourned to March 14th for sentencing proceedings. I will update the description to relay the relevant information once received. If you're currently reeling in disbelief, let's stop for a moment and ask why Jeremy Sears was found not guilty. Well, the judge Elizabeth Bartman delivered her judgment, saying that the state failed to meet the burden of proof to sustain a finding that the accused caused the deceased's death. There was no DNA found in Megan's cottage that could be linked to Jeremy either. According to the judge, the case described as circumstantial was not enough to convict, and the accused's version of events could not be rejected as not true. She would further elaborate that although Jeremy Sears was a calculated person who acted in his own interest and was economical with the truth, she did not have to believe the accused for his version to be reasonably possibly true. This conclusion was compounded by the incompetence of the investigating officers who failed to utilize video material from the Moors during the trial. To this point, she had also stated that it was not the duty nor place of law enforcement to withhold evidence from the court. In doing so, they could have inadvertently aided the cause of the accused instead of the cause of justice. The judge also admonished the petty racism that was displayed at the Philippi police station when Thomas attempted to report the disappearance. She would also state that although the account of assault against Jeremy was exaggerated, it was not fabricated. She, however, believed that he had been injured during the roadblock when he fled but was caught by bystanders and thrown onto the bonnet of a police van that gave chase. So basically, according to the evidence that was presented, there was no forced entry on the night. The owners of all the stabled horses had free access to the property, and the one suspect that was found, well, his DNA was not found in Megan's cottage. Additionally, there was the allegation and introduction of these three strange men that were potentially watching Megan, which ultimately led to the notion of the seedy drug underworld potentially being involved. It appeared that once the police had decided they found their culprit, the investigation had ceased. Further video evidence, which could have assisted in the case, was not obtained. Overall, there were many corners that appeared to be cut and many questions that were left up in the air. The biggest one of all is what really happened that night? Is there truly someone else out there to blame and has an innocent man finally been vindicated? Or... Is there more to this entire story? Alternative theories that exist surrounding the case range from Megan's death being a gang initiation, not an unheard of concept in Cape Town especially, to her death being an accident after drug underlords try to scare her. The second theory, mind you, was put forward by Bashir Sibda, Jeremy's legal representation. The theory worked off the premise that Megan was involved in some way or form in the drug trade. For some reason or another, the drug underlords or individuals in that realm had then tied her up and left her in her boot in an attempt to scare her. However, she had struggled with the ribbons that they had bound her with and in doing so had choked and suffocated to death. Regardless of what your opinion may be, as it stands at this moment in time, February of 2023, the murder of Megan Kramer is unsolved, and closure for her friends and family has been rendered near impossible. From the farm workers who received trauma counselling after the news broke, to the way in which life has changed for her loved ones, Megan's death has had an impact, larger than she may have ever thought it might. Her brother sold his bakery in Cape Town and moved to Pretoria, with his wife and his son, 
who was at the time five years old. His son, who still asks Jillian, his grandmother, when he will next get to go for ice cream with Auntie Megan. Little Bella, Megan's rescue dog, who's not so little anymore, continues to live on the farm with the Moors as well as Thomas. From the pictures I've seen, she seems incredibly loved. Megan's horse, Sir Blue, is in the Plattenberg Bay Equitation Centre in Neisner, where her mother visits him often and even scattered Megan's ashes on the farm where he is retired. In that very same area, they planted indigenous trees to attract butterflies and dragonflies, Megan's favourite creatures, besides horses, growing up. So although Megan may no longer be here, her memory lives on. One of Megan's close friends collaborated with the Justice Desk organization and Backer Buddy to establish a crowdfunding campaign. The goal of the campaign was to raise 60,000 rand for a group of women to be part of the Mbokoro Club project. The project is focused on empowering survivors of rape and GBV through workshops, mental health support, self-defense training, and leadership skills. The goal and aim of the program is to protect other young girls from suffering the same fate that she did. If you would like to check it out, you can find the link in the episode description notes. Megan may no longer be here with us, but her friends and family still hold out hope that one day justice will be served. Her death will not be just another statistic, simply another woman lost to the rampant plague of gender-based violence in South Africa. I'm ending this episode with the words carved onto her memorial shrine. These words were taken from a Facebook post that she made on her account just weeks before her disappearance and murder. The quote from Lillian Katz reads, Each of us must come to care about everyone else's children is intimately linked to the welfare of all other people's children. After all, when one of our children needs life-saving surgery, someone else's child will perform it. If one of our children is threatened or harmed by violence, someone else's child will be responsible for the violent act. The good life for our own children can only be secured if a good life is also secured for all other people's children. Rest easy, Megan. Your voice will never be forgotten, and I hope one day justice will be served. Until next week, my loves, stay safe, stay blessed, stay vigilant, and stay the amazing human beings that I know each and every single one of you are. Bye!